Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey everyone, welcome to a special Academy Awards edition of Movies That Changed My Life with Kenneth Branagh and Kieran Hines, the director and one of the stars of one of my favorite films of last year, Belfast. Ken, Kieran, how are you two doing today? Very well, thank you, Ed. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Very chipper this morning. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I was just telling Ken before we started, um, I'm such a huge fan uh, of both your work and, and Belfast. And, you know, not just me, obviously, the Academy loved it as well. It got seven nominations, uh, a Best Picture, Original Screenplay, Actor in a Supporting Role, Actress in a Supporting Role, Sound, Director, and Original Song. I mean, that is incredible. I mean, how, how does that feel to be uh, the head of that project, Ken? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. From Particularly when it comes to a film that has at its center the experience of a family looking at Hollywood movies from a small street in North Belfast with no sense of how they could even be made. They might as well have been coming from Venus. They were so strange and beautiful that that same story could end up in some weird surreal mirror, uh, ending up back in Hollywood, looking back at that period with seven Academy Award nominations. And for these two lads here, me and Mr. Hines from either side of uh, Alexandra Park, you know, 50 years on, uh, both with our names on on those particular things. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, Kieran, how about you? Yeah, no, it's a story thing. I mean, I, I knew uh, when Ken got in touch and sent the script, uh, immediately there was something, but personally very uh, in, in, engaging and very beautiful about what he'd written. Uh, I don't think at the time when Ken wanted to make this, some people call it a love letter to Belfast, or, but it is Ken's memory of the time of what happened to him as a young boy. Uh, but I connected with it myself personally, although I have a few years on him. And because uh, he, he was he had carved out and created that community of North Belfast, those people. And and I recognize that. I don't think, I, I guess we didn't really know again that this was going to go out into the world and touch people on such a huge level. It was a, you know, Ken's story and it was beautiful. And But to reach out and touch as many people around the globe is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful story, like you said, about family. Obviously, it's about the troubles, um, but it's really just about, I mean, it's a family story. Uh, and when I had watched it, I, um, at the time, my, my first daughter had just been born. And when I watched the film, 
when I was watching it, it was the first movie like as a parent where I was like, what would I do in this situation? And it totally affected me in like a very different way than I think I would have prior to um, having my daughter. So I totally see just like how the story just like gripped into people in a really unexpected way. Um, it, it was just so, so, so beautifully done. Um, so Ken, in addition to the seven nominations, this also, these string of nominations puts you into very high esteem as the individual person with the most Academy Award nominations ever. Uh, unbelievable. <laughs> well, across, yeah, across the, 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 well, across categories, apparently, yes, yes. There's, and and uh, 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 they said that uh, this just had me skip past uh, a couple of little-known individuals called George Clooney and Walt Disney. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, I'm sure that sure they're, they're they're kicking the cat at the moment, and in in a heartbeat will have re-overtaken and grabbed this uh, uh, sort of uh, unusual unusual um, record. And to me, that's it, again it's part of the same staggering thing that Kieran was hinting at when when. Um, you know, we when we started out to make this, we were just we were making something that we cared about, and we cared about it for partly what you're describing. In we we realised that it had the impact in our cast and crew that seems to have had when people watch it. It, it, it ignites their own experience of being a parent, of being a, making difficult decisions or choices, moving away from places and communities that they love for the potential betterment of their family. So. For us, it's always been something that's a kind of personal hand-to-hand story that to have exploded into this other thing that is full of nominations and records and the pair of us in the, 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 the hills of Beverly here <laughs> talking to you uh, is, is, quite, is really quite something. Yeah, and, and Kieran, uh, this is your first Academy Award nomination. I mean, what was that like when the, the uh, nomination announcement came through? Uh, I heard in a very strange manner how it came through. I it's not that I was ignoring them or being you know above myself at all. I I was getting on with my life to be quite honest, and I had a daughter in London and a wife in Paris, and I was betwixt and between the pair of them. So that day when I had no, I didn't even remember it was going to be Oscar nomination day, and I I was off on the train, the Eurostar from London to Paris, and I was actually going through the security. Uh, part and passport control uh, and my phone started pinging but it was on the machine and it was going through and that you know when you put your bag or your coat, <laughs> it was on there pinging away and I was going what I don't know what that is and I went through the machine still pinging and then I went through the passport by the time I got through and looked at my phone there was about 25 pings and it was people from all around the place informing me that uh, <laughs> despite their own taste that I had been nominated for uh, an Oscar. And I, I was kind of embarrassed and thrilled. And I was on my own on this, on this train going like, what do I do now? Just carry me off. So anyway. So uh, did you get any tips of like how to absorb in the nomination cycle and award cycle from Ken, the well-versed uh, nominee? <laughs> Uh, uh, not as yet, but I'm I'm quietly hoping for some at some stage. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. Is is the hang hang on hang on uh, as the as the, the wind whistles past your ears. Well, you have a bit of it already because uh, yes, last night Kieran got off a plane from from London or Paris to Los Angeles, and we went straight to talk to you know uh, in a great interview with with um, um, a colleague of ours, and, and uh, but. And equally importantly, a fantastic audience, a full audience of people watching the movie on a big screen. We still can't get over that. Us, us pandemicicians, uh, you know, come through making movies at this time. 
to actually see a full house of people in a, in a real room watching together is just a thrill. Interesting to me about the two films that you pick is that, uh, you know, Belfast, uh, is, it's about, you know, your experience growing up, Ken, obviously, uh, in Belfast. And it's, uh, as we spoke to earlier, it is like a love letter uh, to the city that it takes place in. And the two movies that you each selected for Movies That Changed My Life line up to that uh, in a different way. You know, the two boys from Belfast chose two movies that are very distinctly New York uh, American stories. So I'm very excited to dive into that. Kieran, we'll start with your pick, which is 1969's Midnight Cowboy, directed by John Schlesinger, written by Waldo Salt, based on the novel by James Leo Hurley, starring Dustin Hoffman and John Voight. Uh, the synopsis, according to IMDb, is a naive hustler travels from Texas to New York City to seek personal fortune, finding a friend in the process. Uh, the film currently sits at a 7.8 out of 10 with 109,000 ratings on IMDb. So, Kieran, talk to me. When was the first time you watched Midnight Cowboy? Uh, I couldn't tell you the exact year. I think it was 1970 or 71. And uh, I had never seen anything like it. Uh, it was a, I, I mean, it was probably X-rated um, at the time. Uh, and that's, uh, I guess I was about 17, yeah. And uh, I had never seen, been to see a fair few films, but nothing as as gritty or as real or as disturbing in a way uh, of, of of this. And it had such energy and to see New York, a city I didn't know, but to see it modern and rough and grimy and grubby and noisy and and edgy. Uh, and in the middle of it, these two strange characters lost in a way, these lost souls hanging on for dear life, trying to con their way through life, as it were, to con with no regular work. And it looked like a desperate place. And yet, there's a lot of humor and joy and uh, fighting through all, all all that grime, if you like. And uh, I remember I was talking with uh, Liam, uh, Liam Leeson, who's a very close friend from way back then, and we kind of bonded over that film. We went on a, a young a young people's theatre course in Holland, like when we were 17 or 18, and we both had seen it separately, and that's where we really bonded about this extraordinary film uh, that we'd never seen the like of. And uh, I think we both agree that if we'd like to, when we grew up, maybe to act a quarter as well as Dustin Hoffman would be quite something. If you could get a quarter way there and to be as good looking as John Voight would be also useful. You know, it was like a kind of balance of of, of, of the two. And um, I mean, of course, Dustin Hoffman's character sticks, Ratso Rio sticks out so extraordinary because it was an, ex and he was young at the time. And I guess he was on the back of the graduate. And I'm sure that this transformation in, in this, in this young man, uh, and all the way down, uh, of, of his edge and his need for life and his, his passion. And then that, the ending, that's very soft, low key passing away on the, I don't know whether it's a six or eight minute scene of mm -hmm. him trying to get to Florida, to the heat from New York, to try and get away from that. And then just slowly expiring it. It's just something that's remained with me, uh, for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, I rewatched it last night and my takeaway is that the film has aged so well with the times because I can't even imagine having watched this film in 1969. Like even for today, it's like avant-garde and experimental and does a lot of things that you wouldn't see today. Um, but back then it was like that. So uh, was it a similar experience for you watching it then? 
Um, it was, yeah, because also the, the way it moved, there were kind of jump cuts and then there were flashbacks and uh, inside. So we we're going back into a man's story to understand what had happened to him before, why he was behaving now. And I hadn't really, and there were, there, it, it was a, a sense of the vibrancy of the filmmaking itself. We weren't treated into a slow flashback. They just took you straight in and out. So you were constantly, in a way, maybe being surprised or being, it was always constantly moving forward. And that whole energy of New York, but even when it was going out of New York to Texas, it still had that bounce and, and, and movement in it. And uh, yeah, I remember, and also it had a great, uh, great soundtrack, mm. uh, a fantastic soundtrack. And that famous Everybody's Talking. Yeah. Me. Uh, beautiful uh, music. And of course, John Schlesinger was a genius director, yep. which would have helped to take that material, which I imagine was really complex you know, to get the soul and heart of that story and how to how to present it inside the hour and 40 minutes. But uh, mm. yeah, it was a hell of a ride, I remember. <laughs> uh, how about you, Ken? Have you seen Midnight Cowboy? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess I haven't seen it. Oh, it's a... I'm going to confess that I haven't seen it. It's a treat in store. Yeah, you absolutely yeah. do. I mean, it's, it's, it's really like a wonderful piece of filmmaking. I mean, so, so Ken, for you, I, I'm curious then, when people talk about like these sort of tentpole movies... Uh, uh, is there, you know, do you have to like run to see them after you kind of discuss them or sort of like, you know, in due time, there's just so much to do on your plate? Uh, you mean contemporary ones, you mean? Or, or, or these or classics, these like sort of these classic these films, classic, yeah. Well, I, they, go, they go on a list. I mean, it's, um, as you were talking about it, Kieran, I feel as though I did get a sort of, sort of strong sense of it. And I, I remember always being intrigued by the idea that John Schlesinger, who is a favorite director of mine and, uh, uh, the idea sometimes that um, people from another place, uh, he would be deemed perhaps a very English director, he made a great picture of Thomas Hardy's uh, uh, Far From the Manning Crowd, um, coming to America to do a very American urban tale. For me, that is very, very intriguing. Um, and uh, I think one of the reasons I didn't see it originally and then lost it was because, as Kieran said, it was an X-rated, mm-hmm. couldn't, couldn't get in. Um, it was, you know, one of those ones that was, um, it was scandalously edgy. I'd love to see it again, is how, mm. how, it, uh, how I'll know uh, at heart. But the fact that I can still remember so much of it, I, uh, I know the Nielsen song, was it Nielsen? Yeah, the everybody's song. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's on its own right. But the, the energy and the, the, the jangle of it, the jangle or the beat of it, the rhythm of it, the... It still sort of sits with me when I go back, and it, it actually makes me want to go and now rewatch Dog Day Afternoon <laughs> because I have less. Me- I can see the visual images, but the storyline has escaped me and its complexity that Ken is talking about. Um, the, the 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 I'm sure I've forgotten many of the incidents that happened in Midnight Cowboy because it is jam packed. Yeah, I mean, it moves at the right, and there's ups and downs, and it goes left and right, and then and then the central premise is the two lost souls, but there's such uh, fluidity and uh, and movement, and and it jangles, you know. It's uh, actually very different from Belfast, which has a kind of fluidity to it, and um, it kind of keeps crashing. And at, at, at that time, it was very radical uh, filmmaking, and yeah. it was interesting to hear you say that even you look at it today, and it doesn't seem like it's aged. It is still an edge. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it still stands out as very like a unique viewing experience, which is, which is pretty amazing for, for the time. Um, you know, you've, you've talked a lot about how you saw this film and then went to an acting course. Uh, do you remember specific ways that you think the performances 
in Midnight Cowboy sort of inspired you at, as a young actor? Because the film came out a couple years before your first credit on IMDb. Um, so I'm curious as to how that sort of shaped you as a young actor. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, we haven't gone to drama school. That, but I, now that you say that, I, I have a memory uh, when I was working in the theater in Dublin. I had just, uh, I had not, I'd left RADA a few years when I was doing some fringe show in Dublin. And it seemed like every young actor in Dublin was doing impressions of Robert De Niro from Taxi Driver. Every single person was going, right, you're talking to me? You're talking to me? I said, we just stop doing that. Do you know, that's him, that's not you. And he said, but everybody was going that. And I think I might have been trying to do the same. Go back a bit after Midnight Cowboy, going go walking down the streets, going, I'm walking here, I'm walking here. You know, that wonderful thing where the car nearly hits him and he just has a shot. Yeah. And um, I don't know if it has affected my career in any other way. Hey, the I'm walking here is good. I mean, people forget. I forgot that that very famous like piece of dialogue in film and sort of like a motif when people think about New York came from, from that movie. Those actors seem to um, occupy that space. You mentioned De Niro, Kieran. You felt with people like Voigt and Hoffman that they were just they were um, in a way that doesn't quite play these days. They were they were artists throwing so much paint at the canvas um, that there that they you were you were in on the experiment of their work it wasn't just oh we got a nice part in a new film or whatever everything they they were as big a part of the filmmaking equation as uh, as those as those directors there was a, a, a series of performers and actors who were who, who, whose artistry as as uh, as, as actors was was as electrifying to see develop across that time as 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 the writers and the directors. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ken, let's go to your pick, which is 1975's Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, it was directed by Sidney Lumet, written by Frank Pearson, based on the magazine article by P.F. Cluge and Thomas Moore, starring Al Pacino, John Cazale, and Penelope Allen. The synopsis, according to IMDb, is three amateur bank robbers plan to hold up a bank a nice simple robbery, walk in there, take the money, and run. Unfortunately, the supposedly uncomplicated heist suddenly becomes a nightmare as everything that could go wrong does. The uh, film sits at an 8.0 out of 10 on IMDb with 250,000 ratings. Dog Day Afternoon was one that I actually snuck into uh, <laughs> at the Reading Film Theater. I think I was 15 or 16, and it was definitely X-rated, and I definitely snuck in at the back. I... It, I Came in at the last moment. It was a woman who was taking the tickets. Just a tiny twinkle of, all right, then. 
<laughs> I also had never seen anything like it um, um, because I didn't, I just certainly didn't know New York. And there, there it was a picture, I think it was made 74, um, that, that was 73, 74. And it was um, a real New Yorker, Sidney Lumet, born, uh, born and bred, and, and Pacino. And the life of the street was so sort of brilliantly caught. But it was a combination with that film of so many um, amazing elements. The story itself, a man who, uh, um, they raid a bank. They, they raid a bank the day after most of the cash has been taken. So instead of having 50000 in the bank, there's $1,000. So everything's already comical. Um, he's never done anything like this before, him and his accomplice. Um, it's Pacino and John Cazales, the great mm-hmm. American actor who was taken too, too early. Pacino, it is most magnificent. Um, the film is dangerous. It feels very authentic and gritty. Uh, by the end, it's a terrific thriller. Pacino, he has this incredible range. He can be out on his street doing everything and, you know, all of that. And then when he listens, when he's listening on that telephone call, it's so sort of beautiful and quiet and so still. I mean, Pacino, another amazing shot of Pacino, where it looks as though a Renaissance painting has come to life, been lifted from a dark picture painted by Velasquez, stuck in an immigration office on, you know, as the Cubans arrive in America. And it's the opening of Scarface. Great shot. It just goes around Pacino, 360, and, and, and it's in the middle. He's been pulled aside by the immigration people. Why are you coming here? And I don't think he, I don't think he molds his face. It's just it, and but it, but he looks like you know Lorenzo de Medici or something. <laughs> but he's he's turned up in seventies Miami. You know, it's like later on in you know much later he did the the was it the Devil's uh, Devil's Advocate, Devil's Advocate. You know, and and he talked to you know Keanu Reeves about who who God is, and he said out of a very quiet piece, he suddenly goes, he's an absentee landlord. From I mean. He just like you don't know where where the emphasis is going to land or why why it should do that. But but then he from there jump off a cliff in Acapulco. He can be this sculpture, unmoving, eyes unmoving, soul open, quiet, whispered, uninflected. It cannot see a breath of acting. And in Dog Day Afternoon, I think he does both of those things to the point where it's actually. It, it it's astonishing. Yeah, I mean, when you sent over the pick pen for Dog Day Afternoon, I mean, in my head, and we talked about this before we started taping, uh, I'm such a fan of your Shakespeare work. So I, in my head, I was like, oh, he's probably going to pick like a Lawrence Olivier Shakespeare film. Uh, and then when you picked this, I was like, oh, that's like a, that's a nice surprise. But then when I watched it, I'm like, this is like a play. Uh, you know, it's really set in one setting. Like it's Shakespearean in a lot of ways. Um, like Al Pacino's like monologues, his multiple monologues throughout the whole f- film, um, it it all like made sense. Like, oh, this is like th- this feels like a play and something that would obviously inspire you. Um, did you sort of make that connection to theater and film at the time? Did that sink in for you a little later in life? A little later, I think. At the time, I felt it was so. It seemed to have be happening in front of our very eyes. But later on, I had the great pleasure of meeting Sidney Lumet on a number of occasions and. And there he was telling me, oh, no, we rehearsed it in great detail for three weeks. And then um, 
But then, of course, you lit a blue touch paper under Al Pacino's performance, who was very, and, and suddenly, you know, the rehearsals were about letting the thing then explode with a with an improvisatory quality and some literal improvising. Mm-hmm. But Pacino was very involved with the casting with the Met. And to, to your point, many people who had appeared, including John Cazales, who'd been in two plays with Pacino, and many others in the cast were New York theater compatriots of Pacino. And he wanted them there for that tight, tight as a drum kind of uh, uh, excitement in, in, in what was a combination of the very well made. It had a terrific beginning, middle and an end. But as it was playing, you felt like it was a grenade going, going off. Um, and I then got to work much later on with Frank Pearson, the screenwriter. He won the best original screenplay for uh, the, the, his work on that. And um, yes, it seemed to me a real combination of what I love, which is um, things that sometimes have a connection or a, or a liftoff point in the theatre, but they're from people so practised there that their ability to play in cinema and therefore bring a sort of life to it is very, very exciting. And Pearson was one of those people as well. So it was one they so many of them were, were proud of, but for me it was also wrapped up in the experience of seeing it in a secret way <laughs> as, a, as an adolescent who shouldn't have been there. And I thought that I had been shown really uh, secrets that that were, were were to be cherished forever it was so i don't know if you felt this kieran about midnight cowboy but for me sounds like you might have done between you and liam but for me dog day afternoon just had an electrical charge to it i'd never seen or felt anything like it before it 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 it, it, it was uh, like galvanic yeah, and it's a film I hadn't revisited since um, until last night, since I was like maybe in high school. And it's a film that like has aged with me very well too. Like I have memories of a kid as I was a kid being like, "Oh, this is like a bank a bank robbery movie." Like these guys are just the bad guys. <clears throat> but watching it now as an adult, I see these guys. Like I understand why the crowd is rooting for them, and like the little complexities of every character. Of like, you know, maybe John Cazale. He's like. Maybe there he has some um, you know mental instability and that's a factor in it and like you know the Attica chance then in the scene Kieran that you were talking about a reference to a prison riot just all these things that went completely over my head when I was younger uh, now with a little more knowledge about the world and, and film um, it's just it just affects me so much more and you know a, a theme when I, I do this podcast is that for most of these films. Um, they're picked when the guest uh, has watched them at a young age. So I love knowing how films has aged with them as well. So starting with uh, Ken, since we're on Dog the Afternoon, how do you think the film has aged with you uh, over the last, you know, 30, 40 years? I think it's still very, very impressive. And I think you're right to pick up on, on for me, a combination of things in there that I was so pleased to learn about later, which was the 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 artifice, the actual art behind it all to produce something that seemed so spontaneous. But it also has, and this this really holds up, uh, the way Lumet orchestrates the tension at the end of the film when the bank robbers look like they might be getting away with it. They're taken in a sort of minibus to the, the airport and uh, only at the very last minute, but in a very, very sweaty 10-minute sequence where you think, I think he's going to do it. I think he's going to get away. And as you say, the crowd in the film... And on this side of the screen, I think because Pacino is so winning, believe it, it, it's going to happen. But it, it, that that's definitely a white knuckle 10 minutes that is 
sort of pure suspense cinema. It isn't suddenly authentic, gritty New York improv uh, fireworks. It's a kind of lean, mean, gritty suspense hold that has your heart beating. That holds up beautifully. It's a real master's lesson from Lumet about how to, to end a thriller. So there's also like a connection for you and Sidney Lumet um, beyond uh, Dog Day Afternoon because he directed the original Murder of the Orient Express. Uh, you obviously directed the, uh, the, the remake from 2017 and the subsequent follow-up. Um, so I, I, I'd love to know, uh, do you have any intention? Would you love to do sort of a 70s-esque thriller similar to Lumet's film Dog Day Afternoon? I would be there would be something amazing about getting someone like Kieran, Liam, anybody else like me who were bewitched by that period of filmmaking and in some way, shape or form finding a way to go back in there. I don't think it would be to try and emulate, copy or compete with the great masters, but to capture really to capture what Kieran's describing, which I can well imagine of, you know, those first four hours with Liam talking about this film, is what that what uh, what people seeing that kind of work at that time did to us. Um, that there's something about the excitement of what certain kind of performances did that, without indulgence, I think is exciting. So, when you get Kieran Hines and Liam Neeson talking about that, if somehow you could tap into the bit of them that connects with that, whatever the story is, whatever the period is, I think that would be pretty exciting. Kieran, have you thought about that sort of in the age of people doing uh, remakes and people calling back to films that inspired them? Um, when, when you're looking at roles, do things like that sort of pop out to you as like, oh, this is sort of a reminder of a youth and I feel like I could have the impact of that sort of thing? No, I am um, not... Personally, I don't. I, I feel uh, certainly the way I look at things. I, I get what Ken is saying. It's, it's very exciting to hear and listen to the idea of going back and being as bold as they were, as brave and as dangerous. And and but having a master like uh, Lumet or Schlesinger harnessing that as well, which is very important for an actor that you have the conductor out there saying, "Whoa, there's a bit too much timpani there, or there's a little bit more uh, cello or piccolo here, or whatever they they do to get that." But it is the bravery and the heart and the the desire and the passion of those actors uh, to allow that to happen inside the the material. That's provided, and uh, I guess I myself I uh, usually go like, what's the best way to be involved in my role in the storytelling of it, and where to place myself, and uh, at what angle to come at that is, and, and look to be guided in that. I wish I had their bravery and their sheer damn nerve and their neck, and to say to hell with everything, here we go. I mean, speaking of a master conductor as director, uh, I mean, you're, you got to work with Ken, and that's why you've gotten all these nominations for for such a, a beautiful film. Um, in, in terms of the way, I'd love to know that since Dog Day Afternoon and Midnight Cowboy, like I said before, are really just core New York stories, um, since you two both came from Belfast, like Kieran, when you were working on the film together, what sort of like stories from your youth were you able to inspire your performance uh, of the grandfather um, into the story? Or was it like Ken's vision and you were helping mold that 
Um, well, it, it can, of course, it stems from the scenario and, and, the, and the color of the characters that Ken had written. But as Ken knew them personally, he in no way asked us to either impersonate uh, any of his family. It was about creating a family between us, a bond that we could, that we could be recognized as an actually truthful family unit that this story could happen from. And Ken uh, had the grace to give us that space to be able, and help us accomplish that, you know, without uh, without instructions, but just gentle guidance and, uh, and thoughts. And uh, it, so that left the ambience and the atmosphere very open for us to be able to connect as a family. And indeed, uh, when I saw the design, the, the production design, the Jim Clay, uh, who was the d- designer, designed the sets, I was back in my own grandmother's terrace house at one stage. Uh, and then I memories flooded to me of my grandfather, who was always tinkering the stuff. Uh, he was always making little things, carving away, whittling away, uh, fixing stuff. And then, not my grandfather, that was my grandfather, my father. Uh, the way I was dressed by uh, Charlotte Walters, the designer, I ended up saying, well, I'm sure my dad had a cardigan like this. Or so it was a kind of a strange osmosis uh, between all the artistic elements that Ken had ga- gathered together of everybody from all the departments coming and then suddenly putting you in the world that you, you knew where you came from again. You really did know your roots. And that was hugely helpful to me. Yeah, and, and even as someone obviously myself not from Belfast, like I felt like that was my life too. There are so many uh, beautiful things that, that captured it in a similar way that I feel when I watch. I'm sure when you watch Dog Day Afternoon and Midnight Cowboy, you'll be like, this must have been like what it was like. There is an electric energy to it. Um, before we wrap, I, I do have to call out uh, in Belfast, uh, Jude Hill, who plays Buddy, um, is, is so phenomenal. Every second he is on screen. You just fall in love with him more and more, even when he's making like little kid mistakes, like, you know, stealing from the candy shop or things like that. Um, You know, what, what was it like getting to work with him? Um, You know, such a young actor. Uh, Ken, we'll start with you. Well, the cliche is true that you learn from uh, somebody like that. They don't have bad habits um, or if they do, they can drop them quickly. Uh, They, um, are very often deeply, deeply present in the moment because they really are learning something in that moment. It's new to them. They're, and in his case, being on a film set, we're doing these scenes, which we didn't rehearse much. On the whole, we just went for it. So his openness to that, his immersion, his sort of effortless method acting, because he didn't have other you know, tranches of experience to come and sort of put, put them between him and the part. He just was... Um, and although he's cleverer than that, I mean, he understood and read the script and thought about the character, but his, his uh, ability was to be right here, right now. And when you see that across a crowded room, I think uh, it helps it, it, from a directorial point of view. It encourages me to do less, be more, get things out of the way. So his, his simplicity or purity, as Kieran refers to, I think very accurately, was a, a sort of a beacon at the center of things for all of us. Yeah, I mean, the, the purity is, is the perfect way to put it, Kieran, because when you watch films that involve a, a, a cast of seasoned actors, uh, seasoned director team as well, and there's a child who's like leading, sometimes you can kind of feel the older actors are maybe acting down or trying to handhold a little too much, but you got zero feeling of that at all. 
it just felt so natural. There, there, there was absolutely no need for any of that. And the way Ken had just talked with him, and uh, I was very, very moved, actually, quietly in the corner, just with Ken and uh, Jude talking together. You know, not directing or not uh, over-listening or saying, what do you want me to do? Just talking together. And then, but when, I, when we were sat together on the screen and watching him, I could see in his face, he was really interested in what I was saying. While the camera was turning, he was genuinely interested. You can see in his eyes and his connection to the, the act of listening, uh, which gave me uh, confidence. Gave me, he was giving me confidence to say that uh, I'm offering something here uh, because he's genuinely listening. And I think he, in that way, that's what I learned from him. To, uh, what we talk about, can you really, really listen to what's saying and, and react accordingly and how, in whatever way you feel like? You know, without saying, oh, we need a reaction, or maybe you do that. Just see what happens, see what comes out. And Jude, in a way, was the center of that, the fulcrum of that. So we could all just look at him and see his face of wonder and interest and joy and confusion and play off that. And it was uh, it was a thrill to be just in the scene with him and with uh, Judy Dench as well. I was trying to keep up with the two of them, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the whole cast is just incredible top top to bottom. Um, so the last question we always have here on Movies That Changed My Life, uh, when it's a single guest, is we ask someone, um, we ask them if they can connect the three movies to see if there's a through line uh, into why they picked the, the movies they want to talk about. But since there are two of you and you each picked one movie, I'm very curious, uh, do you two, both coming from the same area growing up, uh, sort of following a somewhat similar path as young actors, uh, do you see like as to why you think these two movies resonated with each of you? I think there's a, I, I think there's an urban quality. Uh, so city boys in a way fascinated by another big, you know, exciting, vibrant city where street culture and neighborhoods also existed, but in this kind of electrified way with these, with this sort of, um, currency, this sort of um, intensity, this street life that was so vivid. I reckon that maybe we both um, we both might have been attracted to that because it was like a ramped up or more exotic or differently exotic version of our own. And then I think there was something about American acting and something about America, the place that has a hypnotic charge for a lot of people from Ireland. Yeah, I mean, that's just, we've just about encapsulated it all, sir, Kenneth. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that's it. And also, it was sexy, <laughs> in a way, <laughs> to us Belfast people. There was, there was that kind of, uh, I know you talk about the vibrancy, the urgency, which is what we get from both films. But there was, it was that apart. I mean, you actually chose the better word, exotic to be quite frank. Uh, <laughs> it, yes, it was a lot more exotic than our reality, I guess. And uh, But the urban realism, the hardcore, uh, and it did seem weirdly attractive, even though it was dangerous and grimy. Mm. Um, you know, it, Belfast has a similar setting where it takes place on a street. Uh, it shows you this culture. Uh, it's not as gritty, but like the fantastic parts and the uh, you know, the uh, embellishments and things like that really are, are, like I said, gripping and to use your words, like electrifying to me when I saw it in theater. 
Um, so, you know, congratulations on all the nominations. Uh, I was such a big fan of the film. If people haven't watched Belfast yet, you can go, um, you can go rent it for now. Uh, you can rent it on various streaming platforms, Prime Video uh, as well. Um, Kieran, Ken, any, any last words before uh, we sign off here? Uh, well, it's nice to be able to talk about work that we've, uh, that we've uh, enjoyed. It's been a pleasure to talk to somebody who uh, uh, gets excited by watching movies. So uh, I'm thrilled that our movie's available on the places you have mentioned. And it's also still available in movie mm. theaters uh, in the, these great United States of America and uh, in many, many places around the world. So if you get a chance to do that, we would love it. Yeah, it's great to see it in the cinema as well, uh, above all, because it is a, it, you find when the audiences sit together to watch the story, it becomes a deeply shared human experience. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, once again, good luck with uh, the rest of the uh, awards season and cycle and all that sort of stuff. I'll be rooting for you both and, and the rest of your nomination. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Ian. Great pleasure. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.